What's worse, a breach of 220 million email addresses or one giant casino? We talk about it as we count down the biggest hacks and data breaches of 2023. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us and welcome to another episode of Fearless Paranoia, the podcast that seeks to demystify the complex and confusing world of cybersecurity. We are here at the end of 2023. So yes, quite possibly looking over the precipice into the abyss that 2024 may become. And for more on that, please go back to last week's episode. We did some predictions for 2024 and you might be amazed to learn that they're not all the harbinger of the end time. Most of them are, but not all of them are. I strongly recommend you go and check that out. We are going to continue our end of the year theme here with this episode. As part of a two-part series, we're going to start with the biggest hacks. Oh, and by the way, I did kind of forget to do this. My name is Brian. Yeah, I'm Brian. I'm a cybersecurity attorney and, and Ryan over there is laughing at me. Ryan, go ahead and tell everybody about yourself. Yeah, I'm laughing because it's usually me that forgets these things. But, you know, him being the lawyer and being detailed, I'm, I usually count on him to keep us together. But uh, no, I'm, I'm Ryan. I'm the cybersecurity architect. And uh, I'm glad that we were able to get that piece in really quick before we get too deep into the weeds. But yeah, this should be an interesting episode. And anyone who knows me and heard Ryan say that he relies on me to remember the details, just cringed pretty hard. All right. So what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about the biggest data breaches, data leaks, biggest hack incidents of 2023. And our next episode is actually going to be the biggest cybersecurity stories. Some might question, well, what's one that's not the other? Well, there's definitely some overlap, but there's a lot that goes on in cybersecurity that isn't data breaches, which may come as news to some members of the media and some C-suite occupants, but there's a lot going on. And And again, there's a lot of bad news out there, but there is also some good news. There are some bright spots, but we're not going to deal with any of those bright spots today. We're talking about really the depths here. So we're going to go in chronological order here. The worst data breaches, we don't necessarily categorize worst anymore as the biggest. Back 10 years ago, you heard data breaches almost exclusively in terms of amounts of files or number of people whose data was taken. Well, now you've got situations where the number of clients or accounts breached or the number of files leaked is either so big or so small, irrespective of how influential it is, that it's not just not a good metric to use. So we're still going to tell you about those metrics, but these are the breaches, regardless of their size, that we believe were the most impactful in 2023. So Ryan, let's just kick it right off from January. 2023 started off the artist formerly known as Twitter. Yeah, the amazing X that is out there. Um, Well, X started off the year uh, nice and strong in this area. We started off with known breach. There was a disclosure on the internet of upwards of about 220 million users' email addresses breached from the Twitter database. And you think to yourself, okay, so it's a list of email addresses. Why is that really newsworthy, noteworthy, critical, etc.? Well, it's really pretty easy nowadays to attribute email addresses to the user accounts, which can lead to attribution, which can lead to the ability to log in. A lot of times those email addresses are specifically tied right to login to username. It also gives you the ability to know where people are tying these services to. So just because a user uses a particular email address 
to log into X, there's probably a high likelihood that they're using that same email address to log into a variety of other services as well. So there's the opportunity for some spillover in this particular case. And it's a black eye on Twitter and or X itself because it is a huge amount of data that left and they already had a lot of turmoil in 2022 with management shakeup and other disclosures and breaches and things. So it was a heck of a way to start off 2023 with one really big data set hitting the dark web. It's kind of funny these days. It's easy, I think, to think about Twitter or X solely in terms of what's happened vis-a-vis the takeover by Elon Musk. But it is important to remember that Twitter does maintain a unique spot in our social media world. There really isn't another social media platform like Twitter. Twitter is microblogging in the good old days with a character limit that reached everywhere in real time without algorithmic interruption. No other social media site has come anywhere close because it didn't have the same reach, the same method of communication, and the same universal democratization of communication. Did that result in it turning to, at times, a veritable cesspool of bigotry, hate, harassment, and threats of violence? Yes. But at its best, it also facilitated democracy movements in the Middle East. It allowed for the formation and the spreading of peaceful protests against things like police violence. Twitter itself has been a powerful force for good and for evil for a long time. And you have to remember that that history began a long time before Elon Musk took over the company. This was a huge kick in the whatever for a company that was desperately trying to gain some footing. That was January though. So February though, was a nice calm month. Let's talk about the ESXi hack there, Ryan. Yeah. So Twitter and X is a lot more public, right? This one touches a lot more just kind of your average internet users. Now we come back to your businesses, your blue teams, your folks like what I do every day that had a much broader impact, much more skin in the game when it comes to ESX. ESX is a huge hypervisor platform. It's used for hosting virtualization and it's used in a lot of places. The attack itself was referred to as ESXi args. There's some real kind of technical information that we won't dig into too deeply about how the hack occurred, but it was an RCE hack, which allowed full remote execution of code and take over and control of the systems. Scanning across the internet at the time that the attack was disclosed indicated that there were upwards of potentially 3,800, not just vulnerable systems, but compromised systems, which means that this one spread out of control pretty quickly. And it's a big thing because attacking virtualization just means not only you're attacking the hypervisor, which is just the system that controls virtualization, virtualization, but most of those hypervisors don't just run one single virtualized system. Most of them run a, a whole mess of virtualized systems underneath that. So 3,800 compromised hypervisors could turn into potentially tens of thousands of actual compromised servers, services, etc. And with ESXi being as broadly used as it is, this one had a relatively big impact on a lot of businesses, especially businesses that are highly virtualized. So this was definitely a big one as you start to get more into the business world that won't be soon forgotten. So we got an opportunity here to fulfill some of our mission in clarifying the complex world of cybersecurity. When you're talking about the virtualized systems here, how about, well, people like me who you know have some technical savvy, but still don't have any idea what you're talking about when you talk about the deep stuff. What does a virtualized system mean and why is it important? Sure. So when the internet started to scale really, really massively as it has over the last couple of decades, there were a couple of ways to scale. Typically when you ran a server or service in the past, you had a physical server somewhere, which means another box sitting in a rack that was running a utility on it. 
And in a lot of cases, you wanted to keep segregation between system and services. So you weren't running 10, 20, 30 services on a single box. You were running a service or a system on a box. And then when you wanted to fire up another service, you fired up another box and threw it the rack with it. That wasn't going to scale physically in any sort of easy fashion or cost-effective fashion. So virtualization systems stepped in to kind of take that load off. And it allowed you to really segregate those systems and services with having mutual shared hardware and a mutual shared kind of underlying OS. So really, ESXi was kind of the underlying OS. Think like if you were to run Windows and then a bunch of applications on top of it, that's kind of how the average home user runs. But in this case, you run ESXi underneath and then you can run numerous Windows systems virtualized on top of that that are sharing the core resources of that hypervisor. And ESXi is just one of many different virtualization systems and hypervisors that exist out there. But in this case, this is the one that focused, I guess, of this particular uh, February instance. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. So let's take a jump then to March. We have an incident, the 3CX supply chain attack. This actually was the subject of one of our earlier episodes on supply chain. Let's talk about the 3CX attack, right? Yeah, let's talk about scale again. So we just got done talking about scale inside of one system or how one system can be, you know, a scalable attack vector with virtualization. Well, another easy method of scaling up an attack is hitting the supply chain. And that's been something that really didn't happen a lot in years past, but SolarWinds was one of the big first ones that we heard about. But this year in 2023, it was 3CX. 3CX was a very notable supply chain attack because there's 600,000 or so customers using their software sold from a variety of different vendors and distributors, something like 18 to 20,000 different vendors and distributors that are selling out licenses to the software uh, for use. And so when you have this many clients, and just at the core, 3CX is a voice over internet protocol supplier. So they sell basically internet-based phone services really is a really kind of dumbed down way to talk about it. You think about Vonage, it's just thinking about just as a phone service is underselling what they do. It's a online communications tool. And that's important because communications carry information, especially verbal communication carries information that people don't think very much about keeping safe. Well, and it also means that in order to facilitate that level of communication, people are running this on workstations all over the world. And of course, with the whole concept of patch often, patch fast, that's kind of come front and center in the cybersecurity industry, people are being aggressive about patching. Well, if you get into the supply chain, which is the code repositories, the build systems, and the distribution layer of new software, now all of a sudden you've got bad code running inside of 3CX's software and people are patching aggressively and pushing that stuff out, well, that just means that that bad code, that malware-laden code, or that exploitable code is being pushed out aggressively to a large subset of that 600,000 users very quickly, which means they now are subject to whatever was running behind the scenes there. That means that not only do you have a major vendor who is going to start to lose more of the trust of their clients, and the industry as a whole is going to start to go under a lot more scrutiny, but it means that you've got 
got another huge widespread attack vector that was very successful at getting a, a large foothold across a lot of customers' bases through a software tool that's important to their day-to-day -day work. So 3CX in a lot of businesses' cases wasn't something that once they found out this was breached, they could just shut down because how many businesses are going to want to say, hey, let's just shut down our phone system for a few days until we figure this out. If you run major customer service operations, major phone-based sales operations, support, etc., you need to have these types of systems available online and pivoting away from something as big as a vendor like 3CX is not something that most businesses can just kind of do on a dime. They can't just stop and say, oh, we'll just start using Teams calling mm -hmm. or we'll just go back to landlines. You don't have those services available, which means you need to pivot hard really quickly or you need to accept risk or you need to and figure out the storm, how to, yeah. Yeah, figure out how to deal with it. Do you roll back? And if you do roll back, do you actually know what the most recent safe version of a software is? And does it work? Is there a server component? Is it something that you can actually roll back to efficiently, effectively, etc.? So it turned into a real big headache for a lot of businesses that were really deep in the 3CX user base. What you described there also raises one issue that I think we should probably set aside to talk about in the future is have we become so used to the concept of data breaches that the days of cyber attacks causing huge reputational harm may almost be behind us. I keep telling everybody 2024 is going to be a really eye-opening year for a lot of things in cybersecurity. And I think it's going to be eye-opening not just in we're going to see a huge quantity increase in potential attacks. We're going to see the volatility and the sheer I don't know, uh, intensity of these attacks increase. But I think we're also going to see a lot of changes in the way that we adopt and deal with the risk that comes with cybersecurity. We're going to see a lot of changes potentially in uh, regulatory efforts and governance efforts. And it'll be really interesting at its core to see, are any of these things going to be effective? in really slowing this down because I don't think anybody in the cybersecurity industry is going to look at you and say, yeah, in the next couple of years, we expect the number of attacks to slow down because the defensive side is going to be able to catch up or the governance side is going to catch up. I, I haven't heard a single person that has really come out and said that with any level of confidence. The 3CX attack was huge, and I would really recommend you go back and take a listen to our supply chain episode because we do get into it. But I do want to jump to May to probably one of the most impactful breaches of 2023, particularly if you talk to anyone who works in data protection, which is kind of a combination in my mind of cybersecurity and data privacy. Anyone in the data protection industry recognized how bad this was, the move it breach. Talk to us about that one. Yeah, thankfully the intensity of these hacks kind of trails off after this one in particular here. At least it does. They don't seem so bad after this one, but this one was particularly bad. Not to start by the fact that Progress Software had a really rough year and I feel quite bad for anyone that was there because it wasn't just a single CVE or a single problem that led to their problems. There were numerous different iterations of it that occurred afterwards. It was very kind of reminiscent of the way Log4j went. One initial problem followed by a series of additional problems that were kind of pulled out of the weeds afterwards. So there were numerous CVEs attached to the Move It file transfer utility from Progress Software. Again, this is a software that has been identified as a a kind of a managed file transfer or secure file transfer software that a lot of businesses rely on. And in this case, there were 2,500 to 3,000 direct victims, which means direct clients of MoveIt that were impacted. 
And just to clarify, Move It, for anyone who doesn't know, was, I'm not sure if they were, they were definitely one of the biggest. I don't know if they were the biggest, but they were one of the biggest client systems for moving large volume data from one location or one user or one identity or one company to another. And securely is the big yeah. key because there were a lot of businesses that really threw the kind of data in here that you don't want to get out. We're talking data that is immediately under the scope of HIPAA. We're talking personally identifiable information. We're talking financial financial information, yeah. trade secrets, financial data. There was tons of data sitting in here. And there's some businesses that made their way out of this okay, because a lot of them use it as purely a transfer software. And then they delete whatever's in there after the fact. They have good cleanup. And in most of those cases, a lot of those businesses probably didn't suffer a lot of major impact because if you push data into the tool, it gets sent off and then you're deleting out the record of it. There's not going to be a whole lot to get in there and pull out, but there's a lot of businesses that don't do that, right? They go in there and they punch in data and then they share it as like a data room or they keep the records of it in there because it might be good to be able to go back and review that after the fact. And the more that you consolidate and aggregate that data in one place and then just kind of leave it sitting there when a breach like this occurs, that's where the real, real damage comes in. And this one was really unique in particular because you can tell that the actors behind this, the Clop Ransomware game, were really careful to make sure that they didn't start making anyone aware that they were going to do this up front. So there wasn't like, let's poke at one system, let's take a little bit of time, let's poke at another. They sat down in the shadows and made sure that they understood exactly what was needed for widespread data exfiltration and exploit before they actually pushed the buttons to really do this. And they did that so that as soon as they enacted their plans, they could go in and create massive exfiltration very quickly before alarms had a chance to sound, before reactions had the chance to take place, definitely before remediation efforts were able to get into the mix, and a lot of times before teams were able to respond effectively to this. And so they went in very quickly smashed and grabbed a ton of data from tons of customers. Again, we're talking 2,500 to 3,000 victims, but we're talking 84 million individuals is I think what the total was up to last time I had read of actual individuals impacted. I mean, this was hitting, again, not just healthcare and stuff. There were large pension plans and other things in there as well. And in any of those could be any number of identifiable information. I think the full scope is still probably being determined at this point because as more and more victims start to kind of come out and identify that they were part of the impact, the number just continues to climb. So this was absolutely one of the premier data breach incidents of 2023. And definitely a walking, talking, breathing example of why it's important to have not just a detailed and thorough and implemented data retention policy, but to make sure that as a part of that policy, you have a data destruction policy. As Ryan said, a lot of the companies that made it out of this okay were the ones that were wise about making sure that once their data was securely transferred, the secure host had the data deleted. So there was nothing essentially left for them to steal. So May also saw a big breach in the email world, the Barracuda ESG. Talk about that one. Oh, this one was a really interesting one because of what the vendor's recommendation was. In a lot of cases, most vendors, when they go under these major breaches or they find an impact to their system or their hardware, they release some sort of patch, some sort of fix, and they say, please apply this right away. This will mitigate the issues. Barracuda's email security gateway, the incident was actually backdated back to October, 2022. So this one's kind of a little bit of a slip, but it, was never, it wasn't even identified until 2023. So that's really when it became noteworthy, newsworthy. The recommendation in the end from Barracuda for this one was to replace the physical hardware. The breach was so bad that they didn't feel comfortable that patching it was going to take care of it, that patching it was going to be able to root out what happened behind it. 
they are still at this point, I believe, offering free replacements for most of the ESG hardware that exists out there that is still impacted. And recent scans on Shodan show that there's still people running these ESGs, these impacted ones, and most likely they are already breached or already impacted. And so this is one that kind of spiraled out of control really quick and that the reaction from the vendor was very unusual and very non-standard from what we kind of see in the industry. And I don't want to knock vendors unnecessarily necessarily, but from my side in particular, I would be very, very hesitant to not heavily scrutinize Barracuda going forward just because of not only what happened, but just because of the nature of the way that they dealt with it. Well, and that's kind of sad too, because when you look at it, they acknowledge that the breach was that bad and offering to replace them, informing people that they need to replace them. So really kind of doing what you would want to see a company doing when they acknowledge and recognize this serious of a breach. There's probably something to be said for the fact that most breaches aren't going to be this bad. So obviously there's a huge problem there. But again, because it was so bad, what Barracuda is going to be remembered for is how bad the breach was, not their willingness to literally replace hardware. Um, and I would certainly hope that other companies who have breaches that bad are willing to be as comprehensive in dealing with the restitution as necessary. Now, I'm not going to suggest uh, anything about their timeliness of their discovery or their reporting. Obviously, given that this one was going on for as long as it was, there's a problem there. But that's behavior you want to see, isn't it, Ryan? Yeah, it's good that they're being thorough and it's good that they're being proactive at this point about dealing with it. But I mean, to me, if you overlooked something so big and there was something so unrecoverable, that the only real avenue to dealing with it was full-on replacement, I would be very, very untrusting of the replacement. Maybe that's just the paranoid side of me, but I would have a tough time being fearless in that type of vehicle driving around at that point too. I agree with you. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. Let's move on to June. Microsoft Cloud Email. This is another one where the numbers involved don't really give you a good idea of how bad the breach really was. Yeah, this one's a little bit objective. The hack was smaller. It was limited in nature, limited in scope. But when you consider a couple major things, first of all, this was governmental level impact, which means that it could have broad, wide-ranging impacts across anyone that lives the purview of that government. That's a big deal. And when you consider who the holder was of the data, in this particular case, Microsoft, who is one of the world's leading and probably most security deep vendors of major kind of user level services out there right now. Microsoft puts as much money into cybersecurity as some businesses make in a decade now, large businesses even. Rightfully so, obviously, given their size and importance. And they've got huge government contracts. They have an entire Azure government cloud that they run just for government level entities. But this one right here was some State Department accounts, a couple of handfuls of accounts, but upwards of like 60,000 emails that should be considered very top level secret emails because again, this is 
government data. We're talking information that could potentially have some government level classification involved. It could have issues with foreign policy. It could cover data that we would absolutely not want some of our allies, some of our enemies, etc., adversaries out there being privy to. And especially going into an election year next year, this is a relatively notable hack. So even though much smaller than the others, it was notable for a couple of really key reasons. That's why it made the list here. And I mean, yeah. heck, we're, we're, we're still just getting through June, which means we're only halfway through the year at this point. Yeah. And that's one big thing. Anytime you hear the State Department, you realize that's dealing with how our government deals with foreign governments. It also extends to a lot of things involving intelligence. That's a big Pandora's box to open up. We're going to skip over the paradise of what is now the blistering and brutal hot months of July and August because we're going to land on another breach that we talked about before on this podcast. We talked about it because of, I mean, I don't know, it was just funny to talk about it at the time because of what happened, but it was a very significant breach with the MGM hack. Please go back and listen to our full episode on this. We did 10 important lessons to limit your cybersecurity flaws would have been wise for MGM prior to this, given how many times they're hacked. But let's talk briefly about what happened to MGM. We'll call it the day the slot machines stopped. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, July and August didn't really have anything major for us, at least nothing major enough to hit this list. But boy, did September and October come rolling in like a lion afterwards. So MGM, the most notable parts about this, and again, to Brian's point, listen to the episode, you'll get a lot more detail there. But the big things here were, it was trivial. It was absolutely trivial how MGM, a huge organization with huge amounts of money running through their systems, a huge customer base, was taken down by the most basic of social engineering attacks, bad procedure, bad policy, young hackers. We're not even talking nation states here. And if you don't count in the amount of time they probably spend preparing, which I think a lot of the really kind of heavy hitter articles out there kind of missed pieces of that. But if you don't count in that preparatory time, the actual hack itself, per the hackers, took about 10 minutes. For them to own the entire organization. So now again, you don't go in with no intelligence and own a whole organization, even a poorly secured one in 10 minutes, but for you to operationalize the whole hack in 10 minutes, that shows some major failures. It shows failures in alerting and response, failures in visibility, failures in basic level defenses, failures in segmentation in your networks, failures across the board that would have led to this. And it was a super simple thing to probably prevent. And it shows that they need to go back to cybersecurity 101, start at page one of the book and really start heavily paying attention to those first couple chapters because those types of things right there are the things that will extend out the timeframes that you have to respond and will make things more challenging for these types of hacks. But any other businesses that aren't following basic 101, you're going to be subject to something like this if you're not careful and or if the eyes of these young hackers or even, you know, the, God forbid, the more worthy hackers, the nation states and the big ransomware gang start to turn their eyes towards you. 10 minutes could turn into five minutes or it could even turn into something that was not recoverable. MGM was able to relatively recover from this, but a really, really good gang would be able to go through and blow up your backups and other things here, which would make it absolutely a nightmare for a business like this to recover. And when you're the type of business that's pushing through the kind of money that MGM is on a daily mm -hmm. basis, oh, yeah. if your customers start running, a lot of times they're not going to come back and that's the nail in the coffin. Well, one of the big things to bear in mind too, is that as we're going to talk more about in our next episode, part two of this series discussing the big cybersecurity news of 2023, the legal implications of all of these things are rising, maybe at the same time that the reputational impact of these things are falling. And companies like MGM, there's a lot of money going through that company. What does that mean? 
financial regulators. What have financial regulators been doing at breakneck pace this year? Cybersecurity regulations. As a privacy and cybersecurity attorney, I feel like it's been once a week that I receive a new update about a new proposal about cybersecurity rules, regulations, laws, or whatever coming from some financial regulator. They are getting more and more involved in how companies deal with and respond to cyber attacks. And it's my personal belief that if this MGM breach happened even like, say, two years later, you're talking about that company owing hundreds of millions of dollars and euros and pounds in fines beyond just the damage that they are going to be assessed. Now, we are going to move on to the Cisco breach. Now, this was another one. The immediate numbers hide the significance of the attack. Ryan, talk about this one. Well, until you're technical, right? If you manage a network, you're familiar with who Cisco is. Cisco has been kind of one of the primary leaders of the networking market, networking hardware market for a long time. There's a lot of companies out there that use Cisco hardware, routers, switches, etc., all through their network. And Cisco runs a system called iOS, which don't get that confused, all the Apple fans of the world out there, but uh, <laughs> Cisco iOS is is part of their core operating system for a lot of these devices. There was a major RCE this year. Again, that's remote code execution, which means that they've got the ability to launch code against a device from the outside and have it run on the network. And in a lot of cases, RCEs lead to the potential for full system takeover. In this case, there were about 42,000-ish devices that were reported impacted by this particular RCE. And with Cisco devices sitting on the edge, the perimeter of a lot of these major companies, that's a big problem because you know you protect what is inside your company first line of defense is what's on your perimeter what's on the wall and everybody knows from even back in the olden days of siege warfare if you can knock down the walls of a castle it gets a heck of a lot easier to get to the goal of what's inside. But that wall can be quite a formidable obstacle when you come running up against it that you have to figure out how to deal with. Well, again, this was basically catapults throwing stones and hitting with absolute accuracy against the walls of this fortress. Everybody that had the strong perimeter is the best defense approach probably suffered a little bit more in this particular instance because, again, this was poking a hole right through that wall from the internet right to the inside. That's an ugly snare for a business to be in. Yeah, the idea of having your own defenses turned against you is not one that is too appealing to most. And I hate to have to jump off some of these huge hacks so quickly, but let's move on to the next big breach. And here's this one of the story that actually just keeps getting worse. The Okta support hack. We're going to talk about this one in the next episode as well. But Ryan, tell us about this most recent breach. Yeah, Octo's had kind of a rough year, maybe even a rough couple of years. But this one in particular popped up in October. I uh, was first identified. Octo's support system, their primary support system that they used to support customers, had a major breach. The details behind it are semi-technical, so we won't dig into that again. We've covered a little bit of it in earlier episodes, and we'll cover a little bit more in our recap episode next time. Uh, there's lots of great documentation around there about what exactly happened happened and how customers could have been breached using the information found in their support system. But the really notable piece about this is Okta's kind of incident response process and the visibility behind the incident response process and the fallout to this and kind of how this morphed over time. And it really was indicative of the state of the cybersecurity response market. So I won't go so far as to point fingers at Okta and say that they were being misleading directly because there's probably one of two likely things that occurred here. Either Okta tried to minimize the amount of impact publicly 
in hopes to save face, or Okta's incident response process continued to be ongoing past their initial declaration of it ending and continued to find more and more validity behind this showing that the fallout was actually much greater than it originally was. I'm not going to try and pin one or the other on them, but it's highly likely that it was one of the two. And what really happened is they started out saying that there was a very small subset of people that were impacted by this. Handfuls of customers, maybe less than 5%, I think was what their initial statement was. So they said most customers shouldn't have to worry about this. You should all be just fine. It eventually kind of turned into, I think they have said in one of the next major announcements that there was about 134 known customers from their user base that were impacted. And that was kind of the number that went out there. And so then everybody was wondering, okay, well, are we one of the 134? And if we're not on that reported list, then we should be fine and, you know, go back about normal business as usual with Okta. But later on, it eventually evolved. They did release the statement saying that all customers through the support portal were impacted and there was data released, whether that was data about just the administrators of the Okta networks or information on the actual users that lie underneath those. Uh, this was just a support portal. So again, it was highly likely that the information that came out, at least from a customer impact level, was probably just the people that would use the support portal. So these would be your administrators, your Okta power users, people that would open support cases, etc. But the fact of the matter is, is that like with a lot of companies, incident response processes, you have to start notifying people early. And in a a lot of cases at the point when you first start notifying people, you don't have the whole story. And it was clear that Okta did not have the whole story in this case. And this is becoming much more of a thing nowadays is that as the forensics continue to go through their processes, you start to realize that more and more information is uncovered and that short time frame to notification usually isn't sufficient to really give a clear story. So you're going to see a lot more notifications that are going to come out with that kind of political or marketing approach that's going to say we've suffered a security incident. The investigation is ongoing. We will follow up with more information as it becomes available and they will mm -hmm. have to kind of be very ambiguous about how they go through that initial notification period. And there's going to have to be some flexibility there because again, forensics is not a fast process, especially when it comes to how intense some of these actors work, especially the nation state level, to try to maintain persistence quietly, which means you have to really dig into all the dark corners, look under every rock, dig under every rug, open every closet to find all these different things. And with some businesses, networks sprawling as broad as they do, that can be really challenging and time-consuming to dig through all that. And fired up against a couple-day notification period, again, it's you're, you're going to see some inconsistencies between initial notifications and what continues to come down the road with a lot of these. So The reality is, we probably have to start thinking of breaches as opposed to, I've been notified, meaning my data has been taken, to a company that I use has been breached until I hear otherwise, I should assume my data has been taken in that breach. And I think that's probably what's going to have to happen going forward. Yeah, I agree. Like I said, forensics is a slow process. Sometimes uh, companies can get through the process in a couple of weeks. In a lot of cases, it can take upwards of a year or longer to really do a full forensics dive into some of these places. So I think there needs to be kind of layered notifications, really. There should be some requirement for initial notification of the fact that a breach has occurred, but there should be no requirement of any level of severe details until they've had the chance to to really do their due diligence and do the examination to the level that it needs to be done. But that allows us to kind of jump right into our last one here as we creep into December here now. Where we I was going to say, we thought we had our list completed, but the news just keeps on giving. Our most recent is a, from the database security company, MongoDB. Ryan, let's wrap up this list by talking about what happened here. 
Well, we're not going to be able to talk about a whole lot about what happened here because just as we alluded to in the Octa one, the investigation yep. is ongoing. So MongoDB just recently released some information saying that there was uh, access to their system that was unintended. Well, just for people who don't know, MongoDB is essentially a software company, but they're a database software company. So what, is, what do they do? Yeah, they're a database. They provide flexible databases that allow people to store information. So there's a, it ends up as a backend for a lot of different systems, a lot of applications in particular. So uh, businesses use them differently, but they are one of the world's premier databases at the moment. Think along the lines of like a SQL or an Oracle, something like that. It's probably one of the more user-friendly databases, which is mean we, we've seen a lot of adoption of it in the last few years. But because of that as well, with broad adoption means you get a lot of extra attention. And in this case, they got the attention of some bad actors. They've reported that there was customer data accessed. At this point in time, they've only indicated that it's just some basic customer data. So again, email addresses, maybe some customer customer names, basic customer information, but they haven't released a lot of details yet. And I'd imagine over the coming days, weeks, months, we will continue to hear more and more about how deep this intrusion went, how quickly they were able to catch it, and what the full fallout of this is. But like other investigations, it's uh, it's going to take time. So I think we'll just kind of have to put a pin in this one. And if it's big enough, maybe we'll come back to it in a future episode. Well, if you're a customer of MongoDB, just pray that you don't end up hearing about <laughs> them again in any of our free future episodes because there's likely only one reason why you would. Thank you for joining us here for this 2023 year in review, the biggest hacks of 2023. Please tune into our episode next week, which is going to be the biggest cybersecurity news events, happenings outside of just the biggest hacks. Please go back and check out some of our earlier episodes from 2023. We talk about some of the breaches discussed here, plus a whole lot more if you want to get more information about who how and why a lot of these breaches occurred. You can follow us on any of your favorite podcast platform systems. You can also follow us on social media or just go to our website, www.fearlessparanoia.com. You can also check out additional information on resiliencecybersecurity.com. For Fearless Paranoia, I'm Brian. And I'm Ryan. We'll see you next time. 